Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We are continuing on in our sermon series titled, Walking in Faithfulness. Last week, Paul showed us the supremacy of Christ over all things, and we came to delight in this truth that that because of the supremacy of Christ, we are able to rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Today, our sermon text includes three verses from last week's uh, passage, verses 18 through 20. I include them for continuity. Uh, We will read them, but we will focus on verses 21 through 23. In this text, we will see the wonderful love of God that he, in his love, he reconciles us to himself. We see that there, that in Christ Jesus, God has reconciled us into his family. And so there's this truth that we all kind of know here on earth. We all can kind of understand the sense of what it's like to have reconciliation uh, with another human being, somebody who's offended you or hurt you and and there was animosity but now you've come to be drawn back into a relationship with them that's reconciliation now how much more wonderful is it that the thought that God has reconciled us to him that's what we're going to look at here this morning Colossians chapter 1 uh, verses 18 through 23 And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. It speaks of your open arms of grace to embrace people who don't deserve being embraced. And yet you have done this work for us in Christ. Help us to ponder more fully um, the knowledge and wisdom and love that made this happen and help us to embrace you as you have embraced us, that we may walk in faithfulness, we pray. Amen. Are you familiar with the term elevator pitch? If you're in marketing or or sales, no doubt you've heard of the elevator pitch. An elevator pitch is what you would say if you found yourself on an elevator with the head of purchasing for what could be like the biggest client you ever had, and you're on the elevator and you got like 30 seconds before the door opens, what are you going to say? What could you say in those few short words that would cause this person to delight in the prospect of buying your product and then want to actually go out and do so? Verses 21 to 23 are Paul's elevator pitch to the ancient church in Colossae. Now, why would he need to elevator pitch them? They're they're already bought the product, so to speak, right? They're already Christians. Well, in verse 23, Paul hints that, that 
some were in danger of not continuing in the faith, that they were in danger of what he says, shifting from the hope of the gospel. It seems from the rest of Paul's letter that there were false teachers who were influencing the church. Scholars can't actually pinpoint exactly what was going wrong there, but uh, they call it the Colossian heresy. It goes something like this. At that time in their Greco-Roman culture, there was a pseudo-Jewish Gnosticism emerging. There was religious groups that espoused secret knowledge and greater access to the heavenly realms. They promised more fullness to your religious experience. They promised a greater access into the heavenly realm by such things as worshiping of angels. Then um, in order to gain better access, you had to purify yourself and go through certain rituals and rites, including abstaining from certain foods and drinks and activities. And Paul actually quotes one of their false mantras in chapter 2 where he says, Do not handle do not taste, do not touch. That's what the people were saying. And so Paul knows that if such beliefs and practices enter into the church, the very gospel itself could be lost, and this gospel community in Colossae would soon fall apart. As we read and study this letter in the weeks ahead, we too will keep coming back to the same old challenge. Christians, can we not? We can at times drift from the hope and the truth of the gospel. We can come to live like there, like there has to be more. More to life, more to believe, more to embrace, more to do. That the sufficiency of Christ isn't sufficient anymore. And so at the center of Paul's elevator pitch is the centrality of the gospel. And at the center of the gospel is God's gracious work of reconciliation. Reconciliation is to make things right between two or more people or groups. It's more than just a laying down of one's arms. It's the ability now to embrace. Reconciliation includes forgiveness, but it's far more than that. Forgiveness says you're free to go. Reconciliation says you're free to come. And that's what God does for us. St. Athanasius described how, how Jesus' arms stretched out on the cross are, are a picture of God's loving welcome of sinners. It's a, it's a call from God to come and experience reconciliation. Do you see the cross that way? That's the central message of Christianity. We see it in Paul's elevator pitch of God's gracious work of reconciliation. So, that's what we're going to look at. God's gracious work of reconciliation. And as we'll see, all elevator pitches, all good elevator pitches, have three parts to them. They state a problem, they provide a solution, and then they give a call to action. So those would be our three headings this morning. First, our problem. Paul begins his elevator pitch with a short statement of our problem. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Listen, Paul is saying who these Colossians once were. This is who they were before God's work of reconciliation became theirs. Two things. First, they were alienated from God. And second, they were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
What does it mean to be alienated? And more importantly, what does it mean to be alienated from God? To be alienated from someone means that you're estranged from them. Some bitter rift has occurred. One, of, one has offended the other, or perhaps both have offended each other. <laughs> Alienation implies isolation and loneliness, a deep sense of not belonging, of being unwelcome. If you're a little bit older, no doubt you have an example that you could point to, that guy or girl that you used to be so close to, dated for two years, maybe three years, perhaps four years. You did everything together. You lived to bless each other. You shared life together. Nothing could ever come between you except till that one time something came between you. And it was either you or the other person did something, or maybe you both did something, and now you never talk. In fact, it's probably been years since you even thought about this person. You now live as if he or she never existed. This is a muted picture of the alienation from God that we experience. Until God's work of reconciliation comes and becomes yours, there is an invisible barrier between you and God. You probably don't even sense it, but you're estranged from God. You have no relationship with him. Maybe you've perhaps never really given it much thought. But how can you know if you're alienated from God? I think one way is to, how would you answer the question, are you alienated from God? How would you answer that? Those who are alienated from God have a certain quality to their answers, something like this. Are you alienated from God? Well, that's a weird question. I never thought of that before. Are you alienated from God? Well, I don't believe God exists, so no, I'm not alienated from him. Are you alienated from God? Well, to me, God is like an impersonal power of force that I can tap into and harness, but he's, he's, he's impersonal. You can't really know him. Or, so are you alienated from God? Well, if there is a God, he has to be distant. That's what I've decided. Or are you alienated from God? Uh, I don't feel comfortable answering that question. Where's my emotional support pony? (laughs) You see, the way we answer that question, yeah, I went there, I'm sorry. The way you answer that question conveys if you are alienated or estranged from God. How would you answer that question? See, the Christian answers this question with humble knowledge. To the question, are you alienated from God, the Christian replies, well, yes. I was once alienated, but now I'm not anymore. God has welcomed me through the cross of his son. Paul's phrase, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, can be misunderstood. When we think of hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, we think of some other guy, right? We reserve hostile in mind and doing evil things to to shoe bombers and clansmen. But listen, you can be a friendly soccer mom who is simply indifferent to God and fit Paul's description here. See, think about it. To be indifferent is, in the end, to be hostile in mind against God, doing evil deeds. You may think your mind is neutral, but it really cannot be neutral. How so? Here's the deal. If Scripture is right, then then every human being who's ever lived has been made by God 
to live for God and His glory. And so to say you are just neutral to God, indifferent, and just living out whatever seems best to you is really opposed to who God has made you to be. And so it's not good. To put it another way, if the opposite of evil is good, then to not live the good way he has made you to live means your life is hostile in mind and you're doing evil things. Your mind's hostile to God. It's a great problem. It's a personal problem. Most people tend to think that, that the problem with the world is other people, right? Like we tend to think like if everyone were just like me, if the world was just full of everybody just like me, then peace would prevail. There would be no more wars, no more stealing, no more poverty, no more selfie sticks. I mean, just think about it. What if everybody on the planet was you? How would that world look? Imagine, if you could, 7.63 billion Mark Middlecoffs. Everybody who ever lives is Mark Middlecoff. If I'm a tad bit honest, I'm afraid I'd end up arguing with myself all the time. It's your turn to empty the dishwasher. What do you mean? I did it Tuesday. Well, I did it Thursday, and Thursday's after Tuesday, you idiot. What'd you call me, you stupid son of a crud? I'm going to beat the heck out of you. So would go the world if Mark Middlecoff was, if everyone was Mark Middlecoff. We delude ourselves when we insist that we are not part of the problem. As Voltaire stated, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. And so in his elevator pitch on God's gracious reconciliation, Paul begins with a succinct description of who those Colossians once were. So that's our problem. Now for God's solution. Paul juxtaposes, did you see that? Who they once were with who they now are. And it's astounding. Verse 22. Now he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Did you catch that? In Christ, their lives had become polar opposite. Where once before these people were far from God and alienated, how are they now pictured? What do do we see here? They are presented before God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. If we just marvel at that for the rest of the week, we would do well. That's like saying the rebel insurrectionists that are imprisoned in the dungeon have now been welcomed into the king's court. That is what Christ can do for anybody. He presents you holy and blameless and above reproach in God's presence. Now, the word holy connotes two realities. Yes, one, what we typically think of is like moral perfection or purity. Um, God is morally pure and, and we are not, unfortunately. But the second aspect of holiness is this. It points to a work of God setting apart his people for his good use. For instance, when the priests would go into the tabernacle, they would sprinkle blood or water on all the different, on the the altar and on the the utensils, and they would set them apart from common use to holy use, something that God could be used for for his glory. Now, the bowl or whatever, the altar, has has no morality, right? Um, 
But it can be made holy in the sense that by sprinkling of the blood of the water, it's been set apart for God and for his use and for his glory. That's what it, holy means. That's the same word in the Greek, hagios, can be translated holy or saints. Saints, uh, every Christian is a saint. You've been set apart as, as holy unto God. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is reminding this church that they've been made holy by God, cleansed of sin and set apart for him. What a beautiful picture. So reconciliation is God's gracious work whereby those who were once alienated from God and hostile uh, in mind become set apart by God for God. Add to this, reconciliation changes your record. Did you see that? It makes you blameless before God. Oh, to be truly blameless before God. What was the very first thing Adam and Eve did after their sin? They blamed each other. They blamed God. Oh, that every harsh word or careless thought that we've done, every, every selfish act. Think of all the times you withheld good that you know you could have done for somebody. You just didn't do it. Think of all the times you've hoarded things for your own benefit. Think of all that. All the things for which we are to blame. Your entire record of sin and guilt is taken by Christ so that you can be blameless in his presence before God. Blameless. Think about it. Think of the freedom that comes into your life when all blame is gone from you. Think of the life you could live to know that you're blameless and that no accusation could hold up against you. That's what that last part says. We're made holy and blameless, but also above reproach before him. To reproach someone is to find a cause for blame. Some reason why X, Y, or Z happened, um, and it's this person is to blame. To re- and, and what we see here is Jesus is able to make it so that we are above reproach. That no one can find fault, or maybe... People might, but God won't. Listen, be mesmerized by this. That, that Paul is saying that the reconciliation of God makes it so that he will never again find fault or blame with you. Not that the Christian doesn't sin anymore. We do, and it should grieve us when we do. But the Christian has an advocate that continually speaks on his or her behalf. Our sin, all of it, past, present, and future... God has, in his mind, decided to place all of that on his son. His mind is clear with regards to who we are now. No sin can can cause us to, to be reproached. Now, the enemy might say, look what you did. The enemy will find reason to accuse you. But the Lord never will. Not that we don't need to grow. Not that he won't discipline us. But he has resolved in his mind, because of his son Jesus Christ, that we are above reproach in his presence. To be holy and blameless and above reproach before God. How can this be? I'm glad you asked. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. One of them, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Listen, you are most like God when you are actively making peace in your home, in your community, in your church. 
Peace is something that has to be made. It doesn't happen on its own. What happens on its own? Discourse, rivalry, conflict. Just put 7.63 billion Mark Middlecoffs in a room and guess what happens? But peace must be made and peace is costly. God makes peace. He reconciles us back to him through the death of his son on the cross. Last week we looked at it. It's in your bulletin, verses 19 and 20. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the incarnation, God in the flesh. Jesus, fully God, fully man. The, the fullness of God wasn't reluctantly dwelling in Jesus. What does it say? Pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then in verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So here's what we see the, the gospel is. At its center, most reality is this. God sent his son um, in the fullness of deity to live the life that you and I should have lived, holy and blameless and above reproach. He lived that life for you and me. He was actively good. And Jesus dies the death that we deserve. On the cross, he took all of our blame, our reproach, for everything that is unholy about us, he took that upon himself, and he took the punishment. He died in our place. Now, this is where some people kick back. They'll say, but my God would never, my God would never do that. My God is a good God. My God is a God of love. He would never punish anyone, let alone his own son. If you think this way, I'm afraid you haven't fully thought it through. Yes, God is good. God is loving. Nothing can diminish that. But God is also perfectly just. And so there is no wrongdoing that has ever occurred in the entire universe that has not or will not be punished, brought to justice. We tend to like to think that God would just, you know, wink, wink, just sweep our misdeeds underneath the carpet, you know, under the rug. I don't know about you. Over time, I, my rug would have this pile under it so high, everybody would be tripping all over it, right? You know, think about it. God, isn't there maybe some better way to deal with all the crud in my life? How big would the pile under your rug be? God cannot and does not sweep sin under the rug. He does what needs to be done with sin. He judges it. He punishes it. Think about it. If God is only God of love and he's not a just God, you would lose all respect for him. He's a God who turns a blind eye. He's a God who plays favorites. He's a God who takes bribes. Thankfully, God cannot and does not overlook the smallest of sin, and this should be a comfort for us. How so? Think about it. On the cross, God's perfect love and perfect justice meet. We, we just sang similar words in the, in the song we sang, Here is love. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. God is able to uphold his perfect love and his perfect justice by pouring out his anger and punishment for sin, not on you or me, but on his son. If we but give our sins to the son, otherwise our sin still remains on us. It's not under a rug. It's with you, ever-present. Christ takes the punishment you deserve. He gives you his perfect record that you don't deserve, holy and 
blameless, above reproach. God sent his son to make peace with us, to reconcile us back into the love of God and the life of God. It should cause us to marvel at his grace. Maybe this illustration will help you marvel more. What if you found out that your neighbor has rooted through all of your trash, found vital documents, stole your identity, and liquidated all your assets? Would you, what would your attitude towards him be? Of course, it's a him, right? What would your attitude towards him be? Would you not despise him? Would you not pursue justice to the fullest extent of the law? I hope he rots in hell, but first, I hope he has a hard time in jail and then rots in hell, right? Let me ask you, would you ever throw a party and invite him in? That guy who stole your identity? The guy who was evil towards you, who was hostile in mind towards you? Would you not consider him alienated from you? Cut off from any hope of relationship? Let alone worthy of an invitation into your home? Would you throw a party and welcome him? Lavish him with warmth and love and full access to your wine cellar? Of course not. This is not the way we operate. But thankfully, this is not how God deals with us. He does not overlook our rebellion and sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug as if it never happened. He does exactly for us what we need him to do so that all may be made right. He makes peace with us through the blood of his cross. In love, God reconciles us so that we can know him, enjoy him, and experience life with him. So this morning, let us soak in what God has done for us. It's true, right? Reconciliation, it's all God's work, right? It's not our idea. It's his. It's his movement towards us, not, not ours towards him. It's his cleansing of our sin, not us trying to make amends. It's his raising his son to new life so that we may have new risen lives in him. So we looked at our problem. We've looked at God's solution. Now for our call to action. You know, every good elevator pitch has a call to action. Supplies are limited. Act now. Free shipping. Don't delay, right? Paul's call to action is verse 23. And here's what it is. It's a call to perseverance in the faith. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Essentially, Paul is warning the whole church, if you continue, if you continue in the faith, then this reconciling work is yours. Sounds kind of legalistic, right? Sounds kind of like you have to earn your salvation, but that's not the case. Remember the issue in Colossae. There was influencers outside the church, and they were pressing false teaching upon the church. Uh, Jesus was just a man. Jesus helps you, but you need more than Christ in your life. There are boxes in your life that Jesus just cannot check for you, so you need us to help you open up a new pathway. And so in this letter, Paul is 
magnifying the supremacy of Christ over all things, and therefore the sufficiency of Christ for all who rest in him. There, there is nothing that needs to be added. And so in verse 23, he challenges them to persevere in the faith. Keep clinging to the simple gospel message. Nothing needs to be added. We too need to persevere. We too can feel at times like, well, there's just got to be more to the gospel. (laughs) Some spiritual experience, some second blessing that we're missing out of. And it's true, our culture that, we're, that we live in, that we're a part of, it's continually saying that fullness in life is actually found outside of the church. It's found in pleasures here and now, or career, or family, all these different things. And so Paul calls this church to persevere, to continue in the faith. See, what is the best way you can know you're reconciled to God, that, you're, that you have salvation from God? Well, of course, when you look at Scripture, it says that if you believe and confess that that Jesus is the Lord, then you are saved. So we can know that because we've done that. Another way we see in Scripture that you can know you've experienced salvation is when we we understand that, that the Spirit of God speaks to our spirit and lets us know that we're children of God, right? You know that. But I don't know about you, but we've all known people who've confessed those things and said those things, and then 10 years later, they've abandoned the faith. They haven't clung tightly. Um, They've apostatized. That's what, what we call it. And so what is actually the best way you can know that the hope of the gospel is yours? It's perseverance in the faith. Paul, Paul describes it as you continue in the faith. In other words, you keep on keeping on. What does this look like? Well, do you believe this year? Yeah, you do? All right. And next year, guess what? You continue to believe. And in five years, 10 years, 40 years, you still believe. You're persevering. You're continuing on in the faith. Not that there won't be times in which your faith is very, very weak and you feel like you're barely hanging on by a thread. But the long-term trajectory of your life is you keep on keeping on. Remember when, when Jesus had some really harsh words to say about following him and the crowds left? And Jesus says, where will you go? What are you going to do? And Peter replies, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Ultimately, as you keep on keeping on, you come to realize it's it's not you who has kept you keeping on, but rather it's your sovereign Lord who has kept you. Paul isn't saying that continuing the faith is how you save yourself, just that those who are truly saved will continue in the faith. And so here's a challenge for us this morning. I don't have a whole lot of application for us. I just want us to to think perhaps, is there any way, is there anything in your life, some aspect of your life, where you've shifted from the hope of the gospel 
That's, that's what Paul describes, how he describes apostasy in verse 23. Shifting from the hope of the gospel. What an interesting way to put it. To not continue in faith means you've shifted from the hope of the gospel. And so as we prepare to come forward for the Lord's Supper, allow God to search you. Pray that he would. Ask him to point out areas in your life where you've shifted from the hope of the gospel. Confess that. And remember that in Christ Jesus, in God's presence, you are holy and blameless and above reproach. And then as you feast on the meal, cling to Christ and the gospel anew. This morning, we've looked at God's gracious work of reconciliation. We've studied Paul's elevator pitch, so to speak. Our problem is that we're alienated from God and without hope until he reconciles us to himself. And that's exactly God's solution, reconciliation. He has brought us identity thieves near to him. The restoration of relationship, the drawing near, the intimacy that God brings us into is now ours in Christ. And it's all a gracious work, right? We don't deserve it. It's all God's doing. We simply rest in it, and we serve others out of it, right? Paul models for us what people look like who cling to the gospel and do not shift from it. He calls himself what a minister of reconciliation. Don't let that word throw you off. Uh, You're not called to be a minister, like reverend or something. The word there is diakonos. It's where you get the word diaconate or deacons. It literally means to serve. Paul is saying that, that he's a servant of reconciliation wherever he goes. I don't know about you guys, but the east end of Long Island needs to be reconciled to God. And and it's up to us and fellow Christians in the community to let them know about the beauty of a relationship with Christ and what it can look like in their lives. This is what we exist for. This is why we gather to encourage ourselves so we can go out and do this wonderful work of being ministers and servants of reconciliation. Earlier... um, we had read that passage from 2 Corinthians. Go back and reread that this week. Meditate upon that. Once we were alienated from God, but now we've been brought near. Once we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but God has reconciled us by the blood of his Son on the cross in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's no greater message to be believed, and there's no greater hope upon which we should cling. Grace Church, may we not shift from the hope of the gospel. Christ in Christ alone is the solid rock upon which we stand. May Christ be the center of all we are and all that we do, all of our thoughts, all of our actions. And let us spur one another on in worship and wonder for what God has done. For us. Let's pray. Father, just the fact that we can call you, Father, that we can call out in confidence in prayer means that this great work that Paul has 
preached to that ancient church is ours too. This gospel is going forth and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. We thank you that, Jesus, your arms are spread wide on the cross, welcoming us to come and experience the feasting, the pleasure, the intimacy, the joy of being drawn near to God Almighty. Help us not to lose sight of that fact. Help us not to wander aimlessly on this earth, but maybe live with great purpose and focus and devotion and joy and love, we pray. Amen.